0: Our first reading from scripture this morning is from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 9 through 15. For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And in this matter, I am giving my advice. It is appropriate for you who began last year not only to do something, but even to desire to do something. Now finish doing it, so that your eagerness may be matched by completing it according to your means. For if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. I do not mean that there should be relief for others and pressure on you, but it is a question of a fair balance between your present abundance and their need, so that their abundance may be your need, in order that there may be a fair balance." As it is written, the one who had much did not have too much, and the one who had little did not have too little. Here ends our first reading.
1: The Gospel is written in the 12th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke, beginning at the 13th verse. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Friend, who set me to be a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Then he told them a parable. the land of a rich man produced abundantly. And then he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night, your life is being demanded of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. Here ends the lesson. Will you pray with me? God, be in my head and in my understanding. God, be in my eyes and in my looking. God, be in my mouth and in my speaking god be in my heart and in my thinking god be at my end and at my departing amen it is a privilege and a pleasure to be with you this morning and uh i really felt that God is good. This morning, during that baptism, um, I'd like to thank April and her committee, and David for inviting me to come. We've been planning this day for a very long time—six months. We met. Uh, your committee uh, drove up to Stockbridge, and we had lunch at the Red Lion Inn. To a couple times, and I clicked with the committee, I think, right from the beginning um, and they with me and i I had a sense of them representing all of you that this was a faithful uh, and flourishing congregation um, so it's it's really a privilege to be here um, so I'm here to tell you a story. It's a great big story and I only have so much time so I'll hit the high points. It is partly my story, mostly God's story, and before I'm finished I hope you can recognize it in some sense as your story too. It is a story about discovering God in one's vulnerabilities and losses it is a story about grace and gratitude and generosity it is a story of reversals the story i want to tell you today begins 19 years ago on the fifth of august 2000 when i had a catastrophic bicycle accident and hit my head and suffered a traumatic brain injury that left me profoundly disabled for many years and I had as a result of my traumatic brain injury a decade of very poor health including suffering a severe clinical depression because of my accident and illness I suffered a series of losses in addition to my health which I lost. I had to give up my pastorate, which I loved. And I lost all at once. My job, my vocation, my community, and my home, since I lived in the Parsonage. And I want to apologize to Martha for having to hear this story one more time after having lived it. But we did have some hard years. And then something quite remarkable happened. I got better. I went off my medications. I was no longer a depressed guy with a brain injury, just a guy with a brain injury, which I can assure you is a big improvement. And gradually, even my brain improved some i mean here i am right i need to alert you to the fact that one lingering feature of my brain injury is what they call emotional lability which means i may make myself cry while i'm preaching and if so don't worry about it i'll i'll just Figure it out and resume. Oh, so I don't want to I don't want you to have to worry about it. Chances of it happening are pretty good. <laughs> Especially when I start talking about God's love and Jesus. So a little bit more about, not too much more, but a little bit more about my brain injury. Neurologists, in 19 years ago, neurologists had a fairly analog uh, model for how the brain works. You damaged a part of the brain that affects a certain part of the body. And if that's dead, then you lose that function. Um, but now neurologists are learning through MRI brain imaging that other parts of the brain can restore lost functions. Now I'm an old basketball player, so I'm going to use a metaphor here. I think of it as other parts of the brain come off the bench to help the team. And that's what's happened to me. I had uh, things I lost, capacities I lost, uh, returned. Uh, Not all of them and not fully but pretty good for which I'm very grateful. Now, my story would be a more typical American recovery story. If I could tell you, I did something really heroic or courageous to get better, but I didn't. I didn't pull myself up by my spiritual bootstraps. I had lots of help, especially from Martha and my family, from my doctors, and also from the church we joined. And I have to say, a traumatic accident or a chronic illness is a family affair. It happens not just to you but to the people you love and so we went through this as a family. Um, So little by little as I got better um, I began writing again. Um, I started writing hymns something I'd never had done before I think my wiring in my brain got scrambled and uh... in the midst of my worst depression i after a sleepless night because one of the things i lost was my sleep i'd wake up in the wee hours of the morning and just write a hymn and sometimes they came totally in i just wrote them down it's like automatic writing in meter um, the one that you just sang i wrote when i was much better but um. so I started writing again and preaching again a little by little, and then something, um, something I couldn't have done before. And my daughter, Rebecca is a United Church of Christ pastor. Um, she was ordained right down the street here in Westport at Greens Farms Church, where she was the associate. Um, she went to Yale Divinity School and David was her teacher. Uh, It really is a small world, especially in the church. her brother Andrew who's 20 months older works in the U S attorney's office in DC as a federal prosecutor. I, I like to call them uh, justice and mercy <laughs> or law and gospel. Um, so Rebecca, Rebecca had me guest preach about half a dozen times in her church in Little Compton, Rhode Island. Um, and so she had her second child due in uh, May, and her deacons, she and her deacons asked me if I would preach uh, the 10 Sundays that she was on maternity leave. And I surprised myself and Martha by saying, yes, I will. And I did. So we moved in with our daughter and her family for most of the summer. And I preached 10 sermons, which is something I hadn't done in 15 years. And couldn't have done even a few years before. I wasn't responsible for anything else in the church. This is the key. I had someone, there was no, no meetings meetings no pastoral care, no hospital visitation. Someone else did that. I was, I was laser focused um, on the preaching texts for Sunday. It was wonderful. I had a lot of fun. Then a strange and wondrous thing happened. The readings this summer from the lectionary were all from Luke. And I had been preaching from these texts for decades. I was ordained in 1975. Um, But I started to hear Luke's voice anew through the lens, I guess I'm mixing my metaphors, uh, the lens of my own loss, my own suffering, my own vulnerability. I begin to hear Luke. And this, this is one of the things I love about the scriptures. The scriptures don't change, but you change. And the world changes. And old texts come alive in new ways and say new things that you need to hear. And I really heard Luke's voice. And guess what? Guess what the baby's name was? Wait for it, Luke. And he was colicky, so I heard his voice too. And this is where the story I want to tell stops being just about me and becomes mostly about God because it seemed to me totally clear that Luke's description of Jesus ministry from beginning to end was directed at the underdogs, the broken, the vulnerable, the last, the least, and the lost of society. Right at the beginning of Luke's gospel, Mary's Magnificat her canicle of praise after she learns that she's going to be have a child is a song of thanks to God for raising her up in her humility and a promise that God will do the same for the poor, the oppressed and the powerless. It's only in Luke. Recall how Mary said God has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. God has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. God has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. Which leads leads us to the question of who, who got Jesus? You know, not everybody. Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is among you. And some people got it and some people didn't. And who got it? Well, almost without exception, the cast of characters who really got Jesus and his preaching were mostly outcasts or people without power or privilege. They were the, the poor or sick shunned people like lepers who had to ring a bell when they came in the village so everybody could avoid them. Or rich shunned people like tax collectors like Zacchaeus who were hated they were widows, deprived of their status in this patriarchal society when their, when their man died, or orphans, same thing, or women in general, or children. The most vulnerable, many of them are still the most vulnerable in our society to this day. These were the underdogs of the world. And Luke implies, and this is what I heard this summer, Luke implies that only those who get in touch with their inner underdog can hear the gracious good news of God's vast generous love that Jesus both preached and embodied only the people who need God get Jesus because they know they don't have the personal resources um, be it in privilege or in health or in wealth or social capital to live fully whole and this summer I preached on this parable of the rich fool who built bigger barns to hold his accumulated wealth and you may have noticed that Jesus concludes the parable with these words but God said to him you fool this very night your life is being demanded of you and the things you have prepared whose will they be so it is with those who store up treasures for themselves but are not rich toward God and I've preached in this text a number of times, uh, probably mostly on Stewardship Sundays. Um, And I never really noticed that phrase at the end of the story, rich toward God. It's a great phrase, isn't it? Rich toward God. What might that mean, to be rich toward God? So let's take a look at the reading and see what we can... Find, pull in a few threads and see where it takes us. The reading begins with a dispute between two brothers over an inheritance. Sadly, this form of family feud is not an uncommon occurrence then or now. Under the rules of primogeniture, the inheritance would rightly fall to the older brother, but the younger brother is greedy. Notice how Jesus refuses to arbitrate the dispute. After all, who can judge whose greed is better than, than another person's greed. So Jesus warns them, take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And then he told them this parable about the rich farmer who kept building bigger barns to hold his abundance. Now this story is also only told in Luke, but it's consistent with everything Jesus ever said about wealth and greed and as we listen to this story let us be careful not to dismiss this farmer too quickly as a fool for if we turn him into a caricature it is all the more reason all the more easy for us to dismiss him rather than seeing something of ourselves in him after all was this acquisitive farmer really so bad jesus doesn't portray him as a monster his prosperity didn't come from theft or graft. He's not Bernie Madoff pillaging the retirements of thousands or big farmer that helped create the opioid epidemic to profit off the suffering of others. Jesus says nothing about him mistreating any of his workers or exploiting them. There is no dishonesty or criminality here, just prosperity. Sun, soil, and rain have collaborated to make him rich. He seems to be a careful and conservative fellow. You know people like him. Perhaps you are one. He isn't a bad man. So what is he? He's a fool, says Jesus. And what makes someone a fool? Well one good definition of a fool is we all make mistakes but a fool persists in them. And what is this man's persistent mistake? His folly is that he lives for himself. Notice how he talks to himself. He plans for himself. He congratulates himself, even talks to his soul, saying, soul. In other words, he lives completely for himself. It never occurs to him that the brief candle of his life could be snuffed out at any time. And then it is his sudden death proves him to have lived as a fool. In religious terms, the rich fool was an idolater. He had put his wealth and possessions in the place of God. To be an idolater doesn't have to be as obvious as bowing down and worshiping a graven image. It can be as subtle as counting on your wealth and possessions to do for you what only God can do. The rich fool derived security, comfort and meaning from his abundance. But things cannot provide real security, comfort, and meaning. Only God can. So God said, you fool. So what does being rich toward God have to do with our wealth? Let us be clear that wealth is not evil. The farmer's abundance was not evil. Many people think the Bible says that money is the root of all evil, but it doesn't say that. What the Bible says is love of money is the root of all evil. It's 1 Timothy 6.10, as Casey Stengel used to say, you can look it up. And Jesus didn't quite say you can't serve God and money, even though that's the way the New Revised Standard Version translated. But you old-timers who grew up in the King James Version know what Jesus really said. You can't serve God and Mammon, and who is Mammon? Mammon is the god, small g, of money, the personification of money, not money per se. It's an idol, a false god. It is love of money, the worship of money that endangers the soul, not money itself. Money is neutral, neither good nor evil. Money is an instrument. It's what we do with it that counts. Whatever abundance we have is a gift of God to be used for the purposes of God. That was what made the rich farmer a fool. He thought all he had was his to use for himself to store and to save, and he did nothing with it. In the end, he had nothing to show for it. He missed his opportunity to be rich toward God. Now, you and I, like the farmer, are rich by accidents of weather, geography, and history. If you were born in Ecuador or South Sudan, the chances are exceedingly slim that you would be born rich. And many of the people who want to immigrate to America today merely want better for themselves and for their families, just as many generations of Americans have since the founding of our nation. That's who we are. But most Americans don't think of themselves as rich. There is always somebody richer. Well, I may be a little rich, but look at Joe down the street. Um, but notice how our cars and houses get bigger and bigger and things that were once considered luxuries are now considered necessities. Are we any happier than we were before we had 35 different kinds of olive oil to choose from at the grocery store? Ask any elder who lived through the great depression if they feel that our nation feels better, stronger, more unified today than it was then during some truly hard times or if people today seem happier and more at peace with themselves. Today we have incredible abundance but we also have poverty and drugs and gated communities What does it profit us to gain the whole world and lose our soul? So has our abundance really been that good for us? Not to even raise the question of whether it's good for the world. Now you and I as Christians believe that life is more than food and clothing, that there is a higher moral law than the law of the jungle, and that our ultimate goal and destination is to God and not to advance our own prospects. And this is where I hope you will find this great big story that is mostly God's story and partly my story to be something of your story too. That you can be honest in admitting that our world is broken and that in some sense you are broken as well. That you can realize that your own vulnerabilities and neediness are not a flaw but the condition for recognizing and receiving the gracious generosity of God. I often find that people in the recovery community are better at getting this than many Christians because their first step in the 12-step program is to admit they are powerless. They're not in control. One of my favorite writers is Anne Lamott. Everybody know Anne Lamott? If you don't, you should acquaint yourself with her writing. She's just wonderful. And she's... She's in recovery. Um, She says, the difference between you and God is that God doesn't think he's you. She also writes, the desperate drive to own and control in order to fill our psychic holes, to relieve anxiety, fix difficulties, and cauterize old wounds takes root at an early age and is doomed. It's like going to the hardware store for bread. It doesn't sell bread. Now one of the gifts that you get as a pastor is to get to know people at a really deep level. And one of the things I learned is that appearances can be deceiving. You meet someone in church who is well-dressed, smart, articulate and funny. And you think their life is perfect as you come to know them and you learn of their struggles, you learn that everybody struggles, everybody suffers, everybody hurts. Everybody has broken places in their lives. A couple I knew very well had a son who had just graduated from an Ivy league college and soon after developed schizophrenia and ended up living with them for most of the rest of their lives. I've had very, very successful congregants on the cover of Forbes magazine who struggled with heartbreaking family issues. And I've seen again and again how coming honestly to terms with one's brokenness and vulnerability can lead to deeper faith and greater gratitude. What Jesus meant about being rich toward God was about living a life of generosity. Because God has been so generous to us, the proper response is to be grateful to God and generous to others. These early Christians saw Jesus' death on a cross as a life-saving act of love on behalf of God. We see this in Paul's admonition about generosity in his second letter to the Corinthians, when he said, "'For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sakes, he became poor, so that by his poverty, you might become rich. Jesus, of course, was not worldly rich, but he was rich in sharing God's divinity. And his self-emptying sacrifice was the ultimate solidarity with broken humanity. Jesus himself became a nobody, so that all the nobodies of the world could know they were loved as beloved children of God. Jesus, of course, is not only for the powerless and the poor, but he has a special affinity for them because he was one of them. And I'll tell you a secret. Generosity in giving your money to the church will make the church more important to you. That's true. Generosity in giving money to the church will make church more important to you. That's the way it works. Now I have a friend who likes to bet on sporting events and I am tempted by many things in life. I'll tell you quite truthfully, but gambling has never been one of them. Possibly because I have some of my mother's Midwestern Methodist DNA. I just don't get gambling. I don't understand the attraction. So I asked my friend why he likes to gamble and he said, It makes it more exciting when I have some skin in the game. And that got me thinking about what Jesus told the disciples, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He didn't say where your heart is, there will your treasure be. Being rich toward God is acting with the same kind of generosity that God has toward you. Did you know Jesus talked about money more than anything else except the kingdom of God? Do you know why that is? Because he knew the power of money, and he knew it could be a bar to discipleship, or it could be a bridge. And in the church, sadly, we've often sold stewardship backwards, saying the church needs your money. The more important thing is for you to give money to the church, because you really won't fully know about grace and gratitude until you've got some skin in the game. Now your theme for this consecration Sunday, living the love of God, is exactly what Jesus meant when he taught his disciples to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So when we talk about living the love of God, we are not talking about some religious abstraction, but about bridging the gap between our broken and unjust world and the kingdom of God that Jesus both preached and embodied. This is what we pray for whenever we say the Lord's prayer. It is important work. It's God's work. It's our work. As Anne Lamott puts it, you can tell if people are following Jesus because they are feeding the poor, sharing their wealth and trying to get everybody medical insurance. And a final amazing thing I'm going to tell you about the generosity of God, and this is true, you can trust me, is that it is never too late to accept the generosity of God and to act on it by being rich toward God. Jesus warns us, don't be a fool, be rich toward God. Can I get an amen? Amen. Thank you.